So, um, speaking on John Dee, A Life of Angels, uh, please give a warm welcome to Professor Glyn Parry. Thank, thank, thanks, thanks very much indeed, Scott. Um, can you hear me okay at the back, or should I use the mic? Is that better? Okay. Uh, just let me know. Put your hand up if I walk away too much and you, you can't hear me, okay? Um, yes, thanks, thanks for agreeing to circle the number. Um, if you have any other comments, please also write them on the form, and if you want to get in touch with me, put down your email or whatever, or you can email me at, at Roehampton afterwards. I'm perfectly happy to answer questions about John Dee and about Elizabethan history generally. Um, how many people have visited the current exhibition at the Royal College of Physicians? Okay, that's, that's, quite a, that's about a quarter of you, something like that. That's nice. I find it very interesting and, of course, very illuminating. However, this talk is about something it puts on its large mural display about Dee's life, the chronology of his life. And unfortunately, that mural repeats a myth which has been echoed down the centuries. That in 1555, Dee helped the then Princess Elizabeth by casting the horoscope of her half-sister, Queen Mary, and for his pains was imprisoned with the Bishop of London, Edmund Bonner, known for having burnt many Protestants alive at the stake as Beastly Bonner. And you see him being beastly in Fulham Palace, uh, which still stands, of course, in the garden of Fulham Palace, trying to force a Protestant to convert before he had to burn him at the stake. And also having Thomas Tompkins to hold his hand over a candle so he'd know the flames of hell and the flames of the fire before he experienced martyrdom to try and again shock him back into Catholicism. That picture actually stands on the wall, it's framed on the wall, in the room in which that took place at Fulham Palace. You have a go, it's very interesting. These are illustrations from Fox's Book of Martyrs. Everybody familiar with Fox's Book of Martyrs? I'll be mentioning it quite a lot today. Uh, also known as the Acts and Monuments. It's, uh, for those who don't know, it's a massive compendium of, of martyrdom stories about Protestants under Queen Mary that eventually expanded into martyrdom of Christians since the beginning of Christianity. The myth, therefore, <coughs> the form of the myth that we have at the moment that's in the exhibition, um, intimates that Dee was at least a Protestant sympathiser um, in, of the martyrs in those dangerous times. Yet, in almost every aspect, this story is a lie. And the inventor of the lie was this man, John Dee. He made up the story about himself. A decade after the events of 1555, he tried under Elizabeth to put a positive spin on what he'd done under Mary. The true story of what happened under Mary introduces the two themes I want to pursue in this lecture. The relationship between John Dee's angel magic and the politics, which of course was indistinguishable from the religious politics of his time. For Dee was doing far more than casting a relatively innocent horoscope in 1555, and nor was he a Protestant. In fact, in 1555, John Dee was a Catholic priest and already chaplained his friend, Bishop Edmund Bonner, who remained his friend and patron. And I'd like to think that one of those chaps in the background, or perhaps one of those chaps on the right here, Bishop Bonner's chaplains, might well be John Dee, but who knows. So, Dee had been born on the 13th of July, 1527, in the parishes in Dunstan in the East, which is not very far from here, into a traditionally Catholic culture in which much of the church liturgy, its ceremonies, was believed to hold magical defensive powers against the devil and those subordinate demons and evil spirits who troubled human life. Holy water, a consecrated host, ritual prayers and processions, the oil and water of baptism, the last rites, and of course the worship of holy relics and intercessory prayers to the saints and all the holy company of heaven held tremendous magical powers, so they believe. When Dee matriculated at St. John's <coughs> College, Cambridge, in November 1542, which oddly enough was also my college, he joined a college society deeply divided between Catholics and Protestants. 
but the teachers he remembered most vividly later on were all Catholics, as were the five young graduates from St. John's who accompanied him when Henry VIII appointed him a founding fellow of Trinity College in 1546. At Trinity, Dee was patronised by John Christopherson, a devout Catholic who'd also moved from St. John's, who sponsored Dee's studies at the University of Louvain in the Low Countries in 1547-8, just after the Inquisition had savagely purged that university of Protestant heresy. Yet Dee served the powerful Earl of Pembroke under Edward VI, and though a layman, not yet a cleric, was appointed rector of Upton-upon-Seven in Gloucestershire by King Edward VI in March 1553. King Edward's unexpected death in July 1553 created a political crisis for the Dee family. Dee's father, Roland, was a customs officer at Gravesend and a supporter of the Duke of Northumberland. When Northumberland mounted a desperate coup against Mary in favour of Lady Jane Grey, the Nine Days Queen, as she's often called, uh, Roland assisted him at Gravesend, probably in sending troops across to the north bank of the, of the Thames to go up to Cambridge. But Roland ended up in the Tower for his trouble. Queen Mary specifically exempted Roland with others from her coronation pardon. She seized all his fees and offices and imposed a heavy fine which he was one of the last to pay off. Roland then disappears from history and probably died a long time before 1574 when John Dee complained about the hard dealing that had broken his father. So, by late 1553, John Dee faced multiple problems. Mary's Catholic regime was already purging the church of married clergy, Protestants, or laymen, like John Dee. He wasn't a priest. Roland's actions associated the family with treason. To make matters worse, Dee's patron, the Earl of Pembroke, here we see him in splendid armour, had supported Northumberland's plot, and though Pembroke quickly turned his coat for Mary, she remained suspicious. Pembroke only earned her trust when he decisively defeated Sir Thomas Wyatt's Kentish Rebellion in February 1554. In fact, just over there, his cavalry charged down from Holborn down towards the Thames, where Wyatt's army were making their way into London and broke them up and scattered them. Therefore, John Dee's need to ingratiate himself with Mary's regime, and who wouldn't want to ingratiate herself with Mary? Very stern picture. <laughs> coincided with his patron's requirement for conspicuous orthodoxy amongst his servants. So John Dee took the necessary step of becoming a Catholic priest. And Pembroke paid, 20 pounds, paid Dee's 20 pounds taxes to the Pope for the privilege. This conspicuously displayed Dee's loyalty taking place during the week when Mary's government, badly shaken by Wyatt's rebellion, executed not only Wyatt, but also Lady Jane Grey, her husband Guilford Dudley, and her father, the Duke of Suffolk. So, heads were rolling at Tower Hill, but John Dee was becoming a Catholic priest. At some level, Dee may also have been acting out of genuine conviction, judging by his upbringing and his close relationship with Catholics in Cambridge and at Louvain. Very unusually, this is very unusual, Dee took all the six degrees from first tonsure to the priesthood on a single day, which is actually against canon law, um, on, on the 17th of February, 1554, and that would have required Bishop Bonner's personal approval to set the law aside. So, he's, you know, one day he becomes a priest. So what happened in 1555? Sorry. What happened was... Queen Mary married Philip of Spain. Here's their wedding painting. He doesn't look very happy, does he? <laughs> she looks quite pleased, but he doesn't look that happy. She married him in July 1554. By September, she's desperate to produce the Catholic heir. She convinced herself that she was pregnant at the advanced age of 38. In those days, that was getting pretty elderly. Their marriage treaty which had been written by politicians in the English court, specified that Philip could not interfere in the, in the succession if Mary died childless, implying that Elizabeth, and here's the young Elizabeth, a bit younger than what I'm talking about, would succeed her, not Philip. If Mary dies childless, Elizabeth, everyone knows, the next queen. The announcement of Mary's pregnancy therefore transformed Philip's prospects 
and threatened Elizabeth. If Mary had given birth to a son or even a daughter, Elizabeth's life expectancy was much shorter all of a sudden. Philip's supporters introduced the bill into the House of Commons in late 1554 to give him guardianship of Mary's children in the event of her death. She was quite likely to die in childbirth at the age of 38. In January 1555, Parliament compromised, permitting Philip, Philip to govern the realm during the minority of Mary's child if the Queen died, but reasserting English control over the succession under the marriage treaty. So in early 1555, everybody's future depended on that pregnancy. Mary's, Philip's, and Elizabeth's. If Mary and the died, child both died, that immediately destroyed Philip's power in England. He'd be sent packing. If the child died, Mary had little chance of bearing another at 39, and Philip's support in England would evaporate, leaving Elizabeth the obvious successor. Both Mary and Elizabeth's supporters began military preparations. There probably might have been a civil war. But Elizabeth needed information in order to concentrate her forces for maximum effect. She therefore turned to John Dee to divine the future awaiting herself, Mary and Philip. Her choice suggests that Dee already had an established reputation as a seer, though we'd have no evidence about that whatsoever. We do know that Dee's Cambridge studies in perspective, and this is an example of perspective from the works of Roger Bacon I'll talk about in a second, laid the groundwork for his later summoning of angels into crystals through light rays. And this is the diagram of light rays through a sphere, crystal sphere, water inside it. Dee believed that perspective taught how to both measure and manipulate light rays, but also, with the light rays, unseen occult rays. Explaining the magical effects of what they called catoptric, or divination, using light reflected from polished surfaces. Dee later claimed that Jesus Christ himself had supernaturally directed him to the study of perspective. He found it so marvellous. Like his fellow students, Dee voraciously read the writings of the 13th century Franciscan friar Roger Bacon, who asserted that divine inspirations, as he calls them, illuminated the purest souls, perfecting their understanding of all sciences, but without false magical conjurations. God's inspirations revealed nature's secrets, creating wonderful works, and also revealing the future. Dee's, Dee and his Cambridge contemporaries believed Bacon meant that these revelations came through conjuring spirits. Dr. John Keyes, who founded Keyes College, Cambridge, while Dee studied at, at St. John's, owned a manuscript in which Bacon's experimental art included using a young boy as a scryer, a scryer of visions in reflective surfaces. It also taught magicians how to command angels into crystals to instantly reveal the secrets of God's marvellous works and how to conjure a spirit guarding buried treasure. This last point is often forgotten by historians who prefer to separate intellectual, refined angel magic, seeking insight into the universe, from the everyday magical advice they'd associate with cunning folk, searching for lost or stolen property, finding buried treasure, making decisions about marriage, travel, or work. Throughout his life, John Dee, we should note, sought angelic advice on all these kinds of questions for his clients as well as seeking insights into the hidden secret of the universe. 1555 was a case in point. He was trying to find out what the immediate political future held for Elizabeth and Mary. He performed his magic through April 1555 at Woodstock Palace, where Elizabeth lived under tight security, but she did attend mass. And I think that Dee's Catholic priesthood may be a useful cover for his frequent visits, because as a Catholic priest, he could say and sing mass for Elizabeth. When Mary called Elizabeth to Hampton Court on the 17th of April, you know, getting ready for the birth, controlling the possible rival heir, Dee returned to London and tried to conjure the future in rented lodgings. 
where the council's pursuivants abruptly arrested him on the 28th of May. Seizing his books and papers and sealing up his doors, he said, for suspicion of magic. He blamed two informers, George Ferrers and Thomas Prido, the second a trusted servant of Sir Francis Englefield, Mary's privy councillor. So really senior politicians are now involved in the scandalous case. Englefield, the Mary's principal secretary, Sir John Bourne, took over the interrogation, trying to implicate Elizabeth in treason. If she could link Elizabeth to what these men were doing, they could prove she'd been guilty of treason and perhaps execute her. G cracked under pressure, naming his chief astrological accomplice, John Field. Sir Thomas Benger, Elizabeth's household officer, was another person who turned out involved, and Christopher Carey, Dee's former pupil and distant kinsman to Elizabeth through her mother, Anne Boleyn. Roping in Benger and Carey improved the chances of pinning the conspiracy on Elizabeth. Initially, the questions focused on the Tivities, horoscopes, cast for Philip, Mary and Elizabeth. Because even that was kind of politically dangerous. Astrologers courted danger when they drew up destinary or questionary horoscopes about princes. Destinary horoscopes required knowing the ascendant sign or planet upon the horizon at the moment of conception. And Dee made a note that Philip and Mary's marriage took place at 11 a.m. on the 25th of July, with Libra in the ascendant. And that may be part of his calculation of, you know, they go to bed, they have sex, and in contemporary medical thinking, conception is instantaneous. So if you know when people go to bed to have sex, and Dee recorded all this in his own diary in his own life, you know, nine months later, the, the child is born. You know the moment that child was conceived, and you can work out the influence of the stars. More controversial were questionary horoscopes, drawn to answer specific questions and calculated from the questioner's moment of birth or from the time of asking the question. They were often used to locate loss of stolen property. However, they could also be applied to high politics, because it assigned specific themes to the 12 houses of the destinary horoscope, including nativity in the fifth house, favour with the monarch in the sixth, and monarchs themselves in the tenth. Ominously, within days of Dee's arrest, one of Ferrer's children died and another went blind. So the man who accused him, one of his children died. This sounded like witchcraft. This apparent, apparent magical revenge helped to ratchet up the charges from simple horoscopes to lewd and vain practices of calculating and conjuring by early June. Two days later, the prisoners had given some answers, and now they're facing full-blown accusations of conjuring or witchcraft. The French ambassador now reported rumours that the accused and Field and Benger had practiced enchantments against Philip and Mary, impaling wax images to kill them by sympathetic magic. Rumours spread that they'd conjured a demon for advice. Although the council sought to prove a necromantic conspiracy, the investigation had run out of steam by the 9th of June. The four obstinate persons had refused to incriminate themselves, so the council authorised the use of torture. Now, if Dee was put on the rack, he never mentioned it again. But he was a man highly conscious of his singular intellect and also his royal ancestry. This is a, from a gigantic role in the British Library showing John Dee's descent from the ancient kings and princes of Wales, which is very parallel to that of Elizabeth herself. So he's very conscious of his royal ancestry. And that would have been humiliating as well as excruciating we put on the rack. At this point, the Privy Council records stopped talking about conspiracy altogether. But years later, decades later, do you recall that at length, he said, he and his fellow prisoners were brought to Star Chamber in August, where they were discharged of the suspicion of treason. After the Council finally resolved the political and legal problem, are precisely what to do with them. In fact, in early July, soon after the council authorised torture, Dee reappeared as Bonner's chaplain at Fulham Palace. Perhaps he confessed all the council required. We don't know, but it certainly sounds like it. 
Fox's Acts and Monuments, the Book of Martyrs, places D, as Fox called him, one of my Lord's chaplains, a conjurer by report, in Bonner's Garden at Fulham Palace on the 5th of July, where he debated the Eucharist with the Protestant prisoner, Robert Smith, later burnt at the stake. So, long before he later claimed that he'd been released by the Privy Council, John Dee was actually back in Bishop Bonner's household at Fulham. I think he'd told them everything they wanted to know. In the summer of 1555, Dee explored techniques for summoning spirits into crystals. Dee's interest in spirits supports the council allegation that Dee and his accomplices dealt with a familiar spirit. This was a common accusation since it had been practiced since ancient times and condemned by the church for a thousand years. Nonetheless, the circumstances of Dee's arrest point to more complicated procedures than just counseling horoscopes. The council's sealing up his London rooms and gathering his books and papers suggests he was suspected of performing elaborate magical rituals tied to a specific place requiring some paraphernalia. The most likely procedure for summoning spirits used archimastry, a, a, the form of divination Dee had encountered at Cambridge. Uh, his mathematical preface, which he published in 1570, was carefully vague in describing what this exactly was, but it kind of suggests that it was beyond astronomy, beyond optics, but it gave the power of instant revelation to the imagination. And the only illustrations I've found of this is of Charles I. Um, forget the fact it's Charles I. This is what they believe happened, that occult rays from the heavens came down to your imagination in your brain and created visions of the future. Here's Charles I. He's cast down his, his bauble, his, his earthly crown, but he sees a vision of the future of his heavenly crown after his execution. This is the only illustrations I've found of how they understood how occult rays and illumination worked on people's vision. They saw visions. Here's Charles I seeing a vision of his future, the heavenly crown. Now, some people defended divination by natural causes. Contemporaries believe that all vision occurred when light beams emitted by the soul and imagination through the eye encountered objects. Oops, sorry. Um, so when constantly reflected from highly polished surfaces, those beams coming out of the eye sent the soul, particularly the virgin soul, into a self-reflective spiral of religious rapture in which visions appeared. Dee applied mathematical rules of perspective to all of this to take such terrestrial beliefs to the higher celestial level, arguing that one could use optical devices to manipulate celestial influences. The Archimaster could use light, that divine creature, as he called it, which modelled the occult celestial influences to achieve inner illumination. Before Dee dropped hints about this Archimastery in his mathematical preface published in 1570, he spent pages indignantly denying the slander that he was a conjurer of wicked and damned spirits. This rumour, sprouting in 1555, still obviously clung to him 15 years later. Within Archimastery, Dee alluded obscurely to three subordinate sciences using esoteric names that only recently decoded by the historian Nicholas Cluley. They were Alnirangiat, the art of centrilia, that is, divination by reflecting celestial rays onto liquid surfaces, and a third chief optical science, as he called it, that he didn't even want to name. So the second and third of these, divination by gazing into reflective surfaces until it creates images in your brain, seem ideally suited to the needs of Elizabeth and her supporters. It enabled seers to divine the past, present, and the future, to use polished surfaces to reflect celestial rays onto semi-precious stones submerged in different liquids. Inducing visions by the use of gems and crystals, crystallomancy, like the chief optical science, involved invocations of angels or spirits. Crystal gazing and raising spirits happened frequently at Renaissance courts. Many courtiers in 1555 could record that uh, William Witcherly was examined for conjuring in 1549 by Protector Somerset under Edward VI. 
witchily invoked celestial spirits into crystals, aided by a scryer and several Catholic priests to bind the spirit there. Catholic priests had the power to their prayer to control spirits, bind spirits. John Dee was a Catholic priest. The council's accusation that Dee, also a priest, had a familiar spirit, suggests that he employed crystals the same way in his magic. Despite his denials, when Dee began working with the new scryer, Edward Kelly, about 25 years later, he simply assumed that Kelly could perform rituals to command <coughs> angels into a crystal. About 20 years after that, a conjurer who visited Dee's Morton Lake house copied a traditional call he found there. It would originally, allegedly bring angels into a reflecting, reflecting surface on which the conjurer had written the powerful name Hermeli in oil. This closely resembled methods found in 15th century Europe and elsewhere. Whatever his precise method, Dee believed that this artisan trillia offered total understanding of the cosmos. And in 1555, this belief enabled him or his accomplices to forecast the outcome of current political crisis. However, the crisis had been caused by Mary's pregnancy. And it was a phantom pregnancy. So when that phantom pregnancy disappeared, the crisis evaporated. By early August, even Philip of Spain no longer believed that Mary would give birth to an heir. And everyone accepted that Elizabeth would be the next queen of England. So, to clear up Elizabeth's reputation, a very carefully staged managed appearance in Star Chamber cleared all the accused of treason. So there was no connection between these people and Elizabeth and no connection between Elizabeth and treason. And that's why, at the end of August 55, the council released Dion Bonds for good behaviour until Christmas. And he'd already been living in Bonner's household for months by then. However, criticism of conjuring was increasing. During Dee's time at Cambridge, this medieval tradition of angel or spirit magic was losing its grip on the world. In 1536, reformers had changed church doctrine to remove magical power from the sacramentals, holy water, bread, candles, ashes, and palms. Some bishops even attacked the cult of saints, and these were still Catholic bishops, don't forget, and their wonder-working images as superstition. In this emerging world of skepticism, following magical avenues to knowledge, increasing attracted accusations of demonic conjuring. This would create problems for Dee, who nearly 40 years later reminded God, God's angels that I have from my youth up, probably meaning it from Cambridge days, desired and prayed unto thee for pure and sound wisdom and understanding of some of thy truths, natural and artificial, hidden in the frame of the world. Like Bacon, John Dee believed that such radical truths could only be learned by thy extraordinary gift, by direct revelation from heaven, through angelic revelations of thy secrets. But soon afterwards, the devout Protestant William Harrison, whose close friend Christopher Carey studied with Dee, denounced Roger Bacon as a sorcerer. Whatever, whatsoever John D.R. Contraman either how the will write in the defense of Bacon to the contrary. Basically saying John D. is also a sorcerer. D. may have helped Bonner distance Catholicism from the world of charms and spells that July. Because when D. came back to Bonner's household, he was writing a book called A Profitable and Necessary Doctrine, which he wrote, he said, with my chaplain. So Dee may have been involved in writing this book. This book, ironically, condemned witches, conjurers, enchanters, who forsook God by conjurations to raise up devils for any manner of cause. However, Bonner also tried to defend Catholicism against Protestant attacks by silently dropping the power of the sacramentals, the oil, the water, the salt, and so on, to ward off evil. And he also cracked down on midwives using charms of childbirth, which they'd all done for centuries. Bonner had the book read repeatedly from the pulpits of London Diocese. So this became the public statement of the church, that this, what Dee had been doing was now both against Catholicism and Protestantism. And Cardinal Pohl enforced the same teaching program for the rest of the church in England. Now, 
that Catholic religion was determined to see the decline of magic, conjurers like Dee would be increasingly left out in the cold, also exposed to Protestant criticism. Now, Dee considered Bonner his friend. Even though under pressure from Mary, Bonner reluctantly began prosecuting Protestant heretics in 1555. In November, Dee participated in an examination of John Philpot, the former Archdeacon of Winchester, a leading Protestant martyr. And here we see Philpot from Fox's Book of Martyrs being led to the stake. Though Dee proved theologically underpowered for that task, Philpot's political and social prominence generated enormous public interest in his examinations, smuggled accounts of which soon reached Edmund Grindle in exile at Strasbourg, and in August 1556, his fellow exile John Fox published them in Latin for European audience. Grindle, by then Bishop of London, republished Philpot's story in 1559, which didn't help Dee's reputation under Elizabeth. Worse still, in 1563, Fox reprinted it in the Acts and Monuments, giving Elizabethan critics of Dee's conjuring fresh ammunition. Ironically, it was the Catholic use of magic against Elizabeth that helped Dee ingratiate himself with the new queen. In late 1558, the French, when Elizabeth became queen on the 17th of November, 1558, the French, who were still at war with England, publicized Nostradamus's enigmatic prophecies of catastrophe for Elizabeth's new Church of England. Moreover, within days of Mary's death on that 17th November, the Privy Council arrested several Catholic conspirators, including a man called John Prestel. They accused them of conjuring or consulting spirits who had predicted Elizabeth's imminent death and the succession of the Catholic gentleman Arthur Powell, descendant of the Plantagenets, the medieval ruling family of England. So William Cecil, you're seen as a youngish man, Elizabeth's secretary, accused the Spanish ambassador in whose house these conspirators were arrested in whose house these, these conspirators were arrested, egging them on. An ambitious but spendthrift Surrey gentleman, John Prestel spent the next 30 years involved in magical conspiracies against Elizabeth. He repeatedly consulted spirits who repeatedly assured him Elizabeth will be dead in a matter of months. Uh, the long story about that, I won't go into it. Um, he repeatedly stirred up rebellions also by spiritual revelations of an imminent death. It was encouraging Catholic rebellion. Several times his fate became entangled with John Dees, and the continuing occult conflict from late 1558 uh, partly explains the persistence of slanders that Dee conjured evil spirits. However, the council's need to counter Prestel helped Dee to return to Elizabeth's service in early December 1558, recommended by Pembroke and also by Robert Dudley, the Queen's new favourite. With their memories of 1555, Pembroke and Dudley appreciated how Dee's occult knowledge could be used to counter Nostradamus and Prestel's dangerous prophecies that Elizabeth would die soon. Dee's biographers usually state he chose Elizabeth's coronation date. But the council seems to have settled on the 15th of January, even before Dee comes back into the court. So against the occult threats facing a new queen, Dee performed a much greater service delivering an electionary horoscope showing the propitious character of the day already appointed for Her Majesty to be crowned in. Now we can see how seriously both Dee and Cecil took angel magic from a letter Dee wrote in, in mid-February 1563 from Antwerp. He was on a sort of European scholarly tour, begging Cecil for more money to support another year of his not quite gap year, but his year of touring Europe. The letter announced the stupendous discovery of a manuscript by a man called Johannes Trithemius, offering ways to communicate through spirits and angels. Steganographia, which means hidden writing, described how to invoke spirit messengers to convey messages instantly. And here's a later copy to be made now in the National Library of, of Wales. It's all about codes, essentially. When he wrote, 
Dee knew that these spirits included the malicious and untrustworthy Pamersiel, and that Trithemius openly identified many spirits as demons. He didn't care. Trithemius had a long-established reputation for trafficking with evil spirits, using methods drawn from the medieval conjuring tradition attributed to Solomon, Peter of Urbano, and Honorius of Thebes. This evidently did not worry Dee one bit. He possessed Honorius's sworn book, as it was called, detailing the elaborate preparations. The angels later instructed Dee and his scryer or medium, Edward Kelly, to use Honorius's design of the seal Ameth, you see this from one of Dee's manuscripts, which became the centre of the angelic rituals. And in fact, in the British Museum, you can see the wax seal they made to this pattern on top of which they put their crystal ball to call the angels. Um, it's in the gallery to the right of the central courtyard, if you go in there, the case full of Dee's uh, angel materials. When he read Trithemius's claim that angels revealed arcane knowledge to men who served God in love and purity, Dee commented in the margin of his, of his book, God has given this to us sometimes. Apparently, Dee never realized that the incantations in Steganographia, this book, um, could not invoke angels, but actually concealed encrypted instructions for concealing messages inside plain text. And the harder numeric codes that Trithemius uh, concocted weren't really decoded until 1998. Such a powerful coding system. Dee therefore reverenced Trithemius's authority on angelic matters and later pronounced his book on the seven planetary angels conclusive proof for Arthur's great European empire, King Arthur. I'll come back to King Arthur in a bit. Cecil's response to Dee's offer of demonic magical communication is very interesting. He was totally in favour. So here's the Queen's principal secretary. No problem at all working with evil angels and spirits. If it works, he'll do it. He wrote supporting Dee's further travel, enabling him to remain abroad for a further year. Dee clearly rated Steganographia highly. Unlike their shared keen interest in alchemy, their belief in angelic magic may have dated from their days at St. John's College, Cambridge. Cecil spent the early years of Elizabeth's reign gathering evidence of Catholic plots against Elizabeth, allegedly inspired by priests conjuring yet again how long the Queen shall live. He was not the only courtier interested in this. Robert Dudley, the favourite, assured some courtiers that conjurators were lawful especially those who conjured good angels. I don't know if he was talking about Dee. In early 1561, Cecil used another such plot to convince Elizabeth that Catholics had predicted her imminent death and conjured demons to kill her. This supported Cecil's argument, reiterated throughout the reign, that Catholic superstition inevitably entailed traitorous magic to support an international Catholic conspiracy against Elizabeth to kill her and replace her with Mary Queen of Scots. He carefully developed some of these conspiracies with his own spies inside them, um, trying to implicate Mary, Queen of Scots. And he's an early painting of Mary. Lately, we are in France, and therefore now back in Scotland, unable to interfere in England. However, in early October 1562, Elizabeth fell dangerously ill with smallpox, forcing Cecil to spring his trap prematurely at the crisis of her disease on the 14th of October, very close to dying of smallpox. The plot at least provided an immediate argument against Catholic Mary succeeding Elizabeth, if she was fermenting all this magic against her. And when Elizabeth called Parliament for the new year, Cecil began spreading the story that the plot was intended to kill Elizabeth and make Mary queen, aided by her French relatives. So, in the new year, Cecil hoped to use the plot to persuade Elizabeth to marry, or at least settle the succession away from Mary, make some Protestant her successor. The Privy Council combined with most of the commons and lords in January to petition Elizabeth to avoid civil war by naming her successor. They believed that Mary Stuart was beyond the pale. And when Elizabeth refused to do anything about Mary, 
Cecil then got Parliament to start passing harsh anti-Catholic legislation on the basis that Catholic magical conspirators were trying to kill Elizabeth. So connecting Catholics with spiritual magic. In fact, the official indictment said that John Prestel, that man again, had invoked false evil spirits to ask the best way to carry out their treasons. And in fact, in a letter, Cecil acknowledged that Prestel had predicted that Elizabeth would die in March 1563. And there were Catholic uprisings that month. So, the problem was that they needed laws against conjuring. It accidentally um, repealed the laws against witchcraft in 1547 without meaning to. So, although the conjurers were con condemned for treason, no one was actually executed, uh, despite, according to the historian William Camden, their reliance on what he called the unlawful acts of cunning wizards. So Cecil's timing also enabled him to push a new witchcraft act through the, uh, through the parliament, including uh, criminalizing conjuring evil spirits, finding buried treasure, lost goods, and so on and so forth. Now Dee would be consulted on all these matters in the following years, but he therefore returned to a changed England in late 1563. By the time he came back from Europe, the law had changed. What he was doing was now dangerous because it was against the law. There were clear connections now between Catholicism and unlawful spiritual magic. And though John, John Prestel had escaped Cecil's roundup, he managed to escape overseas, he blamed Cecil for being trapped in impoverished exile. To get back at Cecil, he used his brother-in-law the alchemist and spiritual magician Vincent Murphy to attack Dee, and by attacking Dee, he was attacking Cecil, because Cecil was his great patron. Their weapon was Fox's Book of Martyrs, the Acts and Monuments of 1563. Here's the great title page. This is the one where you get the widely published story of Dee's participation in Bonner's interrogation of John Philpot and other Protestant martyrs. Um, and in fact, at that time, what Cecil was doing was spreading an even stronger story about Catholics. Cecil was using his secretariat to spread slanders about Mary Queen of Scots, that she not only made her political decisions on the advice of witches, but was herself a witch who had poisoned two husbands, this is what he said subsequently, and even tried to kill her own son James, with a poisoned apple. It's a bit Disney-like, but Cecil spread the story that this woman was a witch. Now, these claims are widely believed amongst godly Protestants. They were repeated in Parliament, too. Now, originally, of course, Philpott had dismissed Dee as a novice in divinity. He wasn't a very good theologian. Though you've been learned, said Philpott, in other things more than I. So Philpott's subsequent account made it obvious these other things involve conjuring. During his imprisonment, Philpott exchanged smuggled letters with the London Protestants. One letter sent to Philpott reported the treatment of Bartlett Green, a young lawyer held in Bonner's household. When searched, Philpott attempted to destroy the letter, but Bonner reassembled it and read that Green had been committed to the care of Dr. D, the Great Conjurer, which is now in the Great Acts and Monuments. This was just months, of course, after Dee's great conjuring scandal that summer of 1555. So, subsequently, this was published in the Acts and Monuments. So, after Elizabeth's accession, this letter became crucial evidence confirming Dee's reputation as a conjurer to influential Protestants. It associated him closely with Bonner and other leading Catholic hate figures. Moreover, Fox, in 1563, in his great book, added several previously unpublished letters, which no one had seen before, between Philpott and the London Protestant underground. They included an unsigned letter, purportedly from a friend of Philpott, giving a sinister version of Bonner's treatment of Green. All the details in this letter could have been gleaned from previously published works. All the details you could find in printed works before 1563, including the fact that Green shared a chain with Dee. Yet Dee traced all later slanders about his angel magic back to the letter's words that Bonner had 
since committed Green in chamber to Dr. D, the great conjurer, whereunto conjecture you. D attributed such importance to this letter because it had been forged by Vincent Mervyn, John Pressel's brother-in-law, forged and inserted into this book and became the kernel of a campaign of manuscript and oral slander that Mervyn waged against D for the next 20 years or so. Justified, of course, by being printed in this great book, The Acts and Monuments. So in the political, religious, and cultural context prevailing after 1563, this accusation put John Dee outside both the law and mainstream opinion. Now the slanders have long disappeared, but Dee knew that the Elizabethan court, seething with gossipy, backbiting rivalry, magnified their effects. This was why, as I've said, when Dee came to describe rather vaguely archimastery in his mathematical preface published in 1570, he indignantly and at length denied the continuing slander that he was a conjurer of wicked and damned spirits. He still had to deny this during Elizabeth's reign. This became a particular problem in 1576 when Dee began writing a series of treatises which set out the apocalyptic future for Elizabeth's British Empire. He created that phrase, the British Empire. British, because it would revive King Arthur's lost empire in Europe and the Americas. Only one treatise, his general and rare memorials pertaining to the perfect art of navigation, was printed for the general public, where he merely hinted in a discreet Latin tag which um, is hidden in, in the title page, that more is hid than uttered in that book. This is because Dee's angel magic had always been linked to his study of alchemy ever since his Cambridge days and to ideas of empire. A major objective in seeking angelic revelations was to learn the recipe for the elixir or philosopher's stone to transmute base metals, but also perfectly reform human bodies, minds, and souls, and thus reform human society. Dee's European travels introduced him to the profound mysteries of Paracelsian alchemy, which also prophesied a magical apocalyptic restoration of debased human knowledge. Dee eventually owned 92 editions of Paracelsus' books, or those of his followers, grouped on his library shelves at Mortlake for ready reference both to teach Paracelsian alchemy and to practice it as a doctor. That's why he's called Dr. D. Paracelsus claimed to have revived lost alchemy, first revealed to the prophet Elijah of the Old Testament. So D annotated one of his earliest Paracelsian books with the names of good angels who revealed this elect knowledge to D. Anchorus, Anacor, and Anilos. Amongst other ancient prophets, Dee also deeply admired Joachim the Prophesier, the 12th century mystic Joachim of Fiore, who, with his many followers, had spread prophecies throughout Europe of a final spiritual triumph for Christianity under a last world emperor. This was the hidden meaning of that book, Memorials. As revealed in a manuscript written only for Elizabeth and her counsellors, called Limits of the British Empire, there he could openly discuss the hidden meanings of memorials, revealing to the inner circle that lately he had been strangely and vehemently stirred up by the Holy Trinity and ordered to pen diverse advices and treatises in the English language, that is, memorials and other manuscript works, like a, th a manuscript called A Famous and Rich Discoveries. Only if Queen and Council permitted would he explain those works to her British subjects, because in memorials, the method covertly proceedeth, occasion so served. Memorials, in turn, warned that in the secret centre of famous and rich discoveries, there is more bestowed and stored up than I may, or in this place, will express. All these allusions, all these secret hints, meant that Dee believed he'd been inspired to write these works by angelic revelations that they offered Elizabeth an apocalyptic role, not just as head of a revived British Empire, the Emperor of Arthur, but as the last world empress that had been prophesied for centuries. 
should reform the world and rule for a millennium before Christ's second coming, because she would obtain the Philosopher's Stone to do so. Therefore, he sought to prove Arthur's British Empire by referring to a book by Trithemius, that notorious conjurer of spirits, of course, on the seven planetary angels. This didn't discuss Arthur's history or address questions of empire. It described how the angelic spirits governing the seven planets, the seven planets they knew about at the time, controlled history. Each angel ruled seven successive periods of 354 years and four months, giving each epoch distinctive characteristics, including Arthur's empire. The cataclysmic political and religious changes that mark each new period form steps towards the second coming of Christ. Dee even recalculated Trithemius' scheme to show that Anael, the angel of Venus, governed the remarkable concentration of female rulers in mid-16th century Europe, including Elizabeth. She wasn't the only one, there were six or seven of them. The supernova that appeared in the northern skies in November 1572, which has calculations placed within the sphere of Venus, increased that angel's influence. God was signalling through the new star, he told courtiers, that a decaying world would be restored by angelic magic and the discovery of the Philosopher's Stone. Therefore, he dated his book, Memorials, to the year of the world, 5540, the fifth year of the star sent from heaven and returning directly there, that supernova. Memorials therefore offered Elizabeth the Philosopher's Stone to become the reforming last world empress. It seemed to be, this book, seemed to be about raising money for a petty navy royal to command the seas, to found a, a really extensive royal navy. But hidden at the end, under the allusions to the story of the alchemical King Khaled, Dee signaled to courtiers, those who could understand the secret, that some of the money should go to an alchemical research institute hosting four Christian philosophers. This proposal chimed with wider expectations at court that Elizabeth would acquire the Philosopher's Stone in 1577. Alchemists sent their treatises to the Queen. She possessed an alchemical library. Several alchemical laboratories at her various palaces, including at Whitehall down the road. She sponsored alchemists, promising to make the Philosopher's Stone, and employed servants who distilled in her privy chamber. We still have, you know, their wages. They produced what alchemical recipe books described as the Queen's Medicine and Queen Elizabeth's Potion, a purgative she used twice a year. She openly talked about her studies to Parliament and to the end of her life, courtiers appreciated how to use her alchemical interest to manage the Queen's moods, a very moody woman. I was all afternoon with Her Majesty, Sir Thomas Stanhope wrote to Sir Robert Cecil in 1598. And then, thinking to rest me, I went in with your letter. She was pleased with the Philosopher's Stone and has been all this day reasonably quiet. In this context, Elizabeth's carefully controlled iconography suggests previously unnoticed alchemical significance in her pelican and phoenix portraits, painted by Nicholas Hilliard, himself an alchemist, between about 1576. Conventionally, the pelican, and here's the, the pelican portrait of Elizabeth, you see, the pelican is just here. That's why it's called the pelican portrait. The pelican portrait symbolized Elizabeth's charitable care for her people. There, the pelican is feeding its young from the blood in its own breast. That was the pelicans believed to do that. They've been observed, apparently, doing that. And that symbolized Elizabeth's charitable care for her people, since the pelican allegedly fed its young with blood from its breast. However, to many, the pelican also symbolized the penultimate stage of making the philosopher's stone, when the potency of the red elixir was multiplied a thousandfold by repeated distillation and coagulation using a vessel, also called a pelican. You see here in Gian Battista de Borta's book that it's a direct correspondence between the symbol and the alchemical device, the alchemical vessel. Um, and also the phoenix portrait here again named after the phoenix which is a huge jewel there in the centre of her dress the phoenix portrait and you see the phoenix of course is unique it has no 
mate, it renews itself after many thousands of years on a funeral pyre and is reborn again. For a virgin queen, of course, very symbolic. It symbolised the uniqueness of monarchy as well, but also the penultimate stage before the stone itself. Here's a contemporary manuscript of which this is a, a long description of how to make plaster stone, and here we see the phoenix surmounting the, the elaborate uh, symbol. Both symbols became associated with Elizabeth in the minds of her courtiers for the rest of her reign. She's constantly referred to as the phoenix, the pelican, and so on. Connecting Dee's angel magic with his imperial vision also recovers the hidden purpose of his, his manuscript book written in 1577 of famous and rich discoveries. The first 30 folios of this manuscript declaring Dee's intentions are lost. They were destroyed long ago. So the text that survives today doesn't actually justify the assertion in that book memorials that the secret centre of famous and rich discoveries hid more than I may or in this place will express. Obviously, the last part of discoveries contained these mysteries. Now, another manuscript in the British Library, the first surviving record of Dee's angelic actions of December 1581, shows that the missing pages, the bit we don't have anymore, applied Trithemius's angel magic. Dee began his angel magic that December day with a traditional invocation, asking God to send his holy and mighty angel named Anael, the steward of the orb of Venus, and also chief governor of this great period, as I've noted in my book of famous and rich discoveries. Clearly, Dee began famous and rich discoveries, which is all about empire, by announcing Elizabeth's global leadership in the current age of Venus. However, another secret in discoveries required that Elizabeth establish her global empire soon. For in yet another British Library manuscript, overlooked by historians until now, Dee reveals the secret in discoveries, the imminent abrupt shift from the age of Venus to the age of Jupiter. And he called himself the prophet of the age of Jupiter. The angelic spirit, King Vinopore, as he announced himself, told Dee, thou beginnest new worlds, new people, new kings, and new knowledge of a new government. Dee noted in the margin, new worlds, Perhaps a new period doth begin, as I've set down in the volume of famous and rich discoveries to Jupiter after Venus' great period. So we've got this apocalyptic sense that Elizabeth has to hurry if she's going to be the empress of the last days. Now, as this lecture draws to a close, I want to explain what all this has to do with the great lie that Dee began telling in 1576 about his activities in 1555, which has been uncritically repeated by his biographers ever since, including in the current exhibition of his books. The 1570s really did witness an epoch-making change in English foreign policy, which led much later to the establishment of the first British Empire. But it was not the apocalyptic change Dee expected. For centuries, England's default position had been to maintain good relations with whoever controlled the 17 provinces of the Netherlands. You see the Netherlands up here, or well, here's in detail, that's the provinces of the Netherlands. This is the primary outlet for England's most important export trade, wool and cloth, first through Antwerp and later to the north, through Amsterdam and other places. Until the 1570s, that meant good relations with the Habsburgs, who ruled all these provinces. Um, the Habsburgs, uh, Philip II of Spain, essentially, ruled under Elizabeth over these provinces. Which is why, in today, football games between Holland and Spain have this kind of tension underlying them, because the Dutch and the Spanish still don't get on. However, the revolt of the largely Protestant Netherlands provinces, particularly the north, um, caused a watershed change in Elizabethan policy to an effectively anti-Habsburg position. This dramatic change persuaded devotees of the Protestant cause that Elizabeth should become a Protestant last world empress. According to a contemporary writer, the learned of sort now applied these ancient prophecies to her. Excitement increased after Philip of Spain's finances collapsed and he lost control of the Netherlands in late 1575. 
when some councillors, led by the Earl of Leicester, the former Robert Dudley, encouraged her to accept the sovereignty which the provinces of Holland and Zealand, here's Holland and Zealand, then offered her. She became queen of Holland and Zealand. They become part of her crown. Um, this was repeatedly brought up for another 30 years. Um, parts of the Netherlands wanted to be ruled by Elizabeth rather than the fellow Dutch. So, even to become queen of all the Netherlands, so to become queen of England, Wales, Ireland, and the Netherlands. One enthusiast believes she just become sovereign of the seas, able to advance Christ's kingdom and resolve religious differences in all Christendom. So we're looking at the idea Elizabeth is the last world empress. In 1576, even Elizabeth imagined herself bringing peace to the whole of Christendom. Dee's associate in magical learning, his friend James Sanford, another client of the Earl of Leicester, that year published a book which stole the role of last world emperor, previously reserved for the Habsburgs, for Elizabeth. He said that the forthcoming coming great conjunction of the planets in 1583 would bring him abrupt imperial changes. And either the world would end in 1588, or at least governments of kingdoms shall be turned upside down. Elizabeth, he said, in whom there must needs be some diviner thing than in the kings and queens of other countries, would lead all humanity in the end times. Soon, the belief that Elizabeth would usher in world peace permeated the excitable world of popular prophecy. Manuscripts circulated in London declaring that Elizabeth, now Queen of England, is ordained of God to be Queen of Jerusalem. And of course, in contemporary thinking, and they were still thinking medieval terms, Jerusalem is the centre of the world. Here's Jerusalem, here's Africa, Europe, Asia. But Jerusalem is the centre of the medieval world. And from there, the last world emperor will prepare for Christ's second coming. And it was in this context of prophetic excitement that Dee's book, General Rare Memorials, appeared in September 1577, <coughs> urging Elizabeth to recover Arthur's vast European empire to the south and east. It was a time when, Dee later recalled, great hope was conceived of some no simple politicians that Her Majesty might then have become the chief commander and in manner imperial governor of all Christian kings, princes and states. Therefore, Dee's assertion of your highness just Arthurian claim and title imperial made an important contribution to the Elizabethans borrowing, or rather stealing, the ancient imperial mythology of the last emperor from the Habsburgs. However, Dee never defined the British Empire as particularly Protestant. Another lost treatise on converting the American Indians, he dedicated partly to Elizabeth and her Privy Council, partly to Philip II of Spain, and partly to the Pope, since all, immediate, all imperial authority must spread universal piety. However, it became correspondingly more important for Dee, now that his writings were supporting the aggressively Protestant foreign policy of the Earl of Leicester, to put some clear water between himself, Catholicism, and illicit magic. Because when he began the first draft of General Rare Memorials in August 1576, that man Vincent Mervyn Slanders was still having their effect, provoking Dee into filling over 10% of that book with denials that he dealt with any wicked and ungodly art. He now acknowledged that his work for Elizabeth in 1555 had earned him the title of the Great Conjurer. However, he also sought to diffuse that charge by rewriting history, insisting he'd not been Bonner's persecuting chaplain, but also a prisoner himself and bedfellow with one Master Bart Green, the Protestant martyr. Surprisingly, Dee managed to have John Fox personally insert this fabrication into the 1576 Acts and Monuments to make it appear that Dee had been an innocent Protestant victim in 1555. The Acts and Monuments now recorded that Philpot didn't dismiss a guy called John Dee as learned in other things, meaning conjuring, because Philpot's weak opponent now is just some anonymous doctor. The name John Dee disappears. Fox's description of Murfin's forged letter, a sense to be sent to Philpot, doesn't mention Dr. Dee, the great conjurer, at all. Fox also printed that letter without reference to Green sharing 
a, a chamber with the great conjurer and conjecturing about what that meant. Fox, however, did retain Green's comment that Dee had been very friendly. Fox even added a new marginal comment to support Dee's invented story that the Privy Council put him under house arrest in Bonner's household on bail for good behaviour. Thus Dee was turned from persecuting, conjuring Catholic priest and beastly Bonner's chaplain into a sympathetic fellow prisoner. Fox meekly agreeing with everything Dee had written in his book. Now, because this edition of Fox, the 1576 edition, later became the text of the standard 19th century edition of the Book of Martyrs, all Dee's subsequent biographers have uncritically accepted his version of the story, overlooking the very different and more accurate original version of the story published by Fox in 1563. So, why do you rewrite the story? Because Dee did a deal with Lester and his followers who possessed a lot of influence over Fox. It was leverage. The original manuscript of that book, Memorials, differed in significant ways from the book as published a year later. The first draft had included far less material supporting Leicester's policy in the Netherlands. In fact, it criticised the Protestant Dutch as much as anyone. But some months later, G rewrote the text so that it now exonerated the Dutch and advocated Leicester's Netherlands policy on the basis of Elizabeth's God-given rights to a European British Empire. In return, it seems, someone the devout Protestant Fox respected, perhaps even Leicester himself, had a quiet word with him who, um, and told him to personally make the changes I've described. So the removal of Dee the Archconjurer from the Acts and Monuments reflects the way Dee tweaked his book Memorials before it was published in 1577. Dee's service to a powerful patron gave him contemporary political clout. Sorry, temporary political clout. Dee could not resist celebrating this triumph, inserting into memorials a paragraph explaining that Fox had removed the conjuring accusations from acts and monuments because they would make Dee's intended exploits of great importance, that's advocating for a new British empire in the world, based on angelic revelations, seemed diabolical Catholic magic, rather than an angelically inspired support for reforming last world emphasis. So, to conclude, when thinking about Dee and the Angels, we should remember that his practice of angelic magic did not alienate him from his contemporary society, or marginalise him as some esoteric, isolated magus. On the contrary, his ability to weave the medieval inheritance of angel summoning, alchemical pursuit of the philosopher's stone, and prophecies of the last world emperor into a coherent philosophy that could be applied to contemporary politics showed that in the right circumstances his angelic magic put him at the centre of Elizabethan society. For Queen Elizabeth herself shared many of his beliefs about alchemy and the philosopher's stone and was often receptive to the idea that through angelic revelation she could learn what God intended for her. In that, she was like many of her courtiers, though perhaps none were as convinced about the angels as John Dee himself. Thank you.